We're about to start moving into how we specifically work with people of each of the 27 subtypes. We're going to review or uh, share with you the what we call the awareness charts and the action charts, right? The awareness charts are about diagnosing um, or identifying challenges, being aware of things that we want to pay attention to when we're working with clients. And the action charts are what we do to help them grow or even to help ourselves grow. Uh, before we do that, though, we want to do a review of the instinctual biases. Um, we've been talking about the nine types, the strategies, that sort of thing, as we talked about the core qualities and accelerators. But it's been a while since we touched on the um, the instinctual biases, and we just wanted to cover some basic ideas related to them just as a uh, reinforcement. Yeah, I was just thinking that we didn't used to have the instinctual biases in these charts, and we added them recently. Um, yeah. Because they are, I mean, they um, these charts are a really good way to put everything together, and uh, the instinctual biases work that we can do is key. Yeah, and that's primarily because the charts were developed before we started putting so much emphasis on yes. the instinctual biases, and then what everybody would ask us was, well, where does where do the instinctual biases fit on the charts? So mm -hmm. we. Uh, finally added them. Um, a couple of key ideas I want to just remind people of regarding the way we talk about the instinctual biases. Now, uh, by this point in the training in module two, um, we're hoping you don't refer to them still as instincts. Okay. Um, you know, some people do that's language that's taken hold. It becomes kind of a, a reflex. Um, I still refer to my, um, the music function on my iPhone as a Walkman at times. Really? Um, yeah, you know. So <laughs> That's what are you shocking. Do? I know. <laughs> you know. What can I say? You know, not all the time, but just every so often, right? Um, so you know, so language. When I think of myself <laughs> using a Walkman, it was like when I was a kid. Well, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Let, let's not digress here on my age, okay? So, um, <laughs> so, but it's important to understand that these are not three instincts that we're talking about, okay? We've talked a lot about how the term instinct is really not something that's used in serious science, uh, but instead we talk about evolutionary adaptations. And what we are talking about are three domains or clusters or groups of evolutionary adaptations that tend to kind of have a logic to themselves, right, of why they're important. Um, they fall into these three clusters, and each of us has a bias towards one of these domains, and we call this the instinctual bias, okay? Um, Another word, and I know that bias is perfect, but uh, it's kind of like three instinctual tendencies mm -hmm. uh, for people, at least in other languages, uh, the translation for biases, it's not a word that we use a lot. Right. Uh, so uh, just to give an alternative for people who um, are not comfortable with the word uh, when using it with other people or with groups, uh, a way to explain it is 
it's instinctual, it's tendencies to pay attention to one domain more than the others. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's a tendency to pay attention to one area more so than the other two. Um, fundamentally, because we think in some way that it's more important, right? That's why we pay attention to it, that there's some wiring in us that, you know, makes us value it uh, more highly, this one particular domain over the other two. Um, so uh, a bias is just a preference toward something, right? A non-conscious preference toward one thing over other things, okay? So, um we each have a bias towards one of these domains. We do all three of them, right? Meaning that we pay attention to all three of them to some extent. So because of our tendency for confirmation bias, it's really easy to convince ourselves that even the bias that we pay least attention to is the one we pay most attention to, right? Because we you know, we don't see ourselves when we're acting non-consciously and habitually, right? We're on autopilot. Our mind is somewhere else. We're doing things without realizing it or without really realizing it, okay? So it's easy to say, you know, it would be easy for me, for example, to find examples of me in transmitting mode or in preserving mode and justify that as... Um, uh, my bias. And it would be easy for me to overlook my dominant bias because, again, I'm doing it just like all of us, non-consciously. Okay. We, we think about it, but we don't realize we're thinking about it most of the time. Okay. It's only when we step back and start paying attention to what we're thinking about or what we're spending our time on that we really start to see our patterns. So it's really important to see these as not just three instincts, but as clusters of adaptations that we have a biased value on, right, uh, over the other two. Yeah, and it does help to have a, a better description of these three domains, because, for example, I'm thinking about navigating, and if we think about it as social uh, we might not only not be aware of what we're doing, but if we have a kind of distorted description of it or understanding of it, we will never see ourselves like that. Yeah. yeah. And to, to stick with that one as an example is that, you know, um, what we talk about is this need to navigate our social environment. Okay? That's different from being social. There are very few people who know me who would consider me to be social, right? Um, I find people, for the most part, to be a little bit of a, an irritation or a burden, right, in some ways. Uh, but I'm fascinated by them, and I pay attention to them all the time, and I want to learn about them and, you know, so forth. So anybody seeing our description or definition of navigating could, who knows me could certainly see that in me. Um, but, you know, again, they wouldn't think of me as social, all right? Um, same thing with sexual versus transmitting. Sexual, you know, uh, is it's a specific word, right? means a specific thing having to do with sex. And um, uh, transmitting is about more than that, okay? Uh, now, it's a cluster of behaviors that increases our chances of having sex, but it does more than that, right? It increases the chances that somebody will see what we do, what we create, what our views are, 
right? So it's about transmitting all sorts of things, not just uh, our genes. Okay? And again, with the preserving domain, it's not just about uh, self-preservation, but it's about preserving the things and people that we care about, okay? Whether it be a tradition, whether it be stuff, uh, whether it be children or loved ones, whatever it is, it's a bias towards behaviors that would increase the chances of preserving those things. Okay. Um, so again, we break these into different domains, each one of them. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking about, I think something that we mentioned, I don't know where or when, but um, in order to assess your instinctual profile or someone else's, you need to step back because you might get overwhelmed by too much information, I think, about these yeah. domains and step back and see what are the fundamental things of each of them. Yeah. And there's something about, and I'll go, um, not in the order that we have them here, but there's something about transmitting that they're not all the time, but many times this broadcasting thing, but kind of not really paying attention to how much energy I'm using or how many resources I'm using, but just throwing them out there. There's something about not needing to preserve their energy as much as the others. I mean, as much as the preservers, because I see so many preservers thinking, or sorry, transmitters thinking that they're preserving. And there's something about kind of throwing their energy out there, transmitting, uh, that's very visible when you step back and yeah. think about the person or yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same thing with preservers. They are preserving their energy. They are preserving their personal resources many times. I mean, most times. And regardless of what they say about themselves, they care about how much time they're going to use in something, um, how much it's going to personally cost them to get involved in something. And um, navigators are different. Um, navigators are more kind of all over the place, more distracted, more um, curious about different things and not using their energy so intensely as the transmitters and not being so and not paying attention so much about preserving it either. Yeah. It's not a, a non-issue, I think. Yeah. There's kind of a diffuse quality to what you're yeah. talking about, right? It just kind of oozes, you know, in different directions kind of randomly um, in, with navigators very often. So, yeah. Um, so, but to, to the point about the um, getting too close to it that you made, Maria Jose, um, it really is, you know, we, we always 
give the example of the Zen parable of the mountain, right? You know, at the beginning, it seems really easy. And then when you kind of dive into it, you get lost, right? And you say, man, I see this and I see this and I see mm -hmm. this. And then eventually it starts to become clear again. And you ask yourself, how could I have ever missed this, right? Why was I, how was I so blind to this? Um, but that's kind of the process that everybody goes through. Mm -hmm. um, so we break down each of the do three domains into subdomains, right? Three, and then those have each three subdomains of their own. Um, the preserving domain, you know, breaks down into issues of security. Am I safe enough? Uh, well-being and resources. Do I have the, what I need? Am I okay? Um, and then maintenance, right? Are the things around me uh, in good shape as they should be? The navigating domain is about trust and reciprocity. It's about power and influence dynamics, and it's about uh, status and identity. Now, it's not always about I have to be, you know, high status and, you know, uh, highly visible, it, all that sort of stuff. It's deciding where I want to be. It's deciding where I want to be and where I am compared to other people's mm. and people yeah. and where other people are and, you know, who is on top and who's not, et cetera, right? So, um, and the uh, transmitting domain is uh, broadcasting and narrow casting, right? The narrow casting is the piece of it that gets all the attention in most of the Enneagram literature is this kind of laser focus on the other. Uh, but it starts with a tendency to broadcast first, right? Peacocks lets everybody see the feathers before it, you know, focuses its attention on one particular PN. Um, it is about asserting, going, af going after what they want, and it's about leaving an impression. Okay. It's interesting how it's just so, I mean, not conscious. I, I think of my daughter, um, who's a transmitting six, and she just kind of dyed her hair, kind of decolored it, um, and she draws a lot of attention. Now, if you ask her, she just likes it. And now and, she got another color and it's kind of like purple, you know, right. and that would even draw more attention. Yeah. She's not trying to draw attention. She just likes it. Right. So it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a non-conscious bias. Now they do have the ultimate end of drawing attention to ourselves, but that's not the proximate goal, right? That's, it's just this need to express myself that comes out in the transmitting domain, right? And again, this isn't to say that preservers don't trans, you know, don't express themselves and that there aren't preservers with purple or orange hair or something like that. It does happen, but it's it's not the same intensity and degree that we see in the transmitters. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, one final idea to capture here is uh, around the dissonance and contradiction, right? People are complicated. Um, these biases, these adaptations have occurred over time. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the nature likes to build in a backup system for us, right? So it creates multiple ways of achieving the same end. And this can cause the dissonance in us and the contradictions that we see. Right. Uh, in the navig, I'm sorry, in the preserving domain, it's um, uh, being conservative versus indulgent. Right. Is that, is that the word we have here? It's a little small on my screen. Yes. Um, anyway, okay. Thanks. I'm 
we say this, the same thing pretty much about the one, but it's in a different kind of way. Um, but um, restraint, restraint with the one. Thank you. Uh, so uh, it's do I hold on to what I have, save it for a rainy day, or do I indulge now? Both of these are ways of satisfying the preserving impulses. Okay, but they cause stress inside of us. And this can cause me to act in contradictory ways. When I'm in conserving mode, I'm holding on to my stuff. I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to eat any of my food okay, um, and or take any of my blankets or whatever it is. But when I am in indulgent mode and you know I'm feeling a little less um, constricted, I can be very, you know, nurturing, right? So we see this contradiction of nurturing versus selfishness in preservers. Yeah, um, I, I'm happy to be nurturing as long as I have enough for myself. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. Um, in the navigating domain, it's... Um, um, uh, uh, Seeking acceptance. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Management. I, I, you know, you, you would think that I wrote this stuff or something, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, what we're talking about here with this dissonance is that one of the ways that we find um, uh, our, um, our identity is by sharing with people, right? Exposing ourselves so that we'll be accepted, but we don't want to expose too much or we don't want to expose the wrong things or we'll be rejected. Okay. So there's this contradiction here, right? And um, in the way it expresses itself in behaviors, connecting versus judging, right? So the navigators, I, I, I want to connect to people, right? So I can be part of the group. I can be, you know, uh, part of the tribe, but I'm always evaluating people. And sometimes I'm not doing so in a generous way, right? So yeah, and it's classifying. I, I really like that because it's, it's less... Judgmental. Yes, <laughs> it is, and and it involves the judgment as well. Yeah. But yeah. but in the navigator's mind, they're trying to classify people, yeah. behaviors, uh, to understand where they belong, and in the process, they're judging. Yeah, yeah, yes, and so it's just it's an element of constant evaluation of the other right whereas preservers are evaluating the stuff and the situation uh navigators are evaluating the others okay just to understand where all the pieces fit now when we go to the transmitting domain we have this dissonance as bonding versus the need for the new right and again this gets back to the broadcasting versus narrow casting thing right so i i really want this but you know what about that one Maybe I could have that one too. And, you know, so there's always this dilemma that the transmitter is facing that, um, you know, I want to send this message, but what about all these other options? Okay. It feels kind of seven-ish in a certain way, right? You know, and we see the yeah. overlap between these instinctual biases and the strategies sometimes. But uh, so this is kind of the torment inside of the, um, of, sorry, of the transmitter. And, um, and that's why the, the transmitting seven is such kind of the stereotype of the seven. Yes. Uh, it's because it has both yes. sides kind of going for after the same thing or behaving yes. in similar ways. Yes, absolutely right. And it's why some of the other um, 
personality types can be so hard to identify because there's this contradictory quality, right? Transmitting nine is an example we always mm -hmm. use, right? Um, you know, uh, preserving sevens can be hard to identify sometimes, uh, navigating nines, navigating, I'm sorry, navigating eights, I meant uh, navigating fours can be hard to identify, etc. Okay. Um, so finally, we have this contradiction, again, the outward expression of this dilemma for transmitters, and that is what we call uh, charming versus attention-seeking. Right. So the the transmitters can be genuinely interested and, you know, enthralled by other people and they can genuinely want to know more about the other person. But then they fall back into transmit mode. Right. It's like, OK, I've you know, I know what I need to know about you and I can transmit to you now. So when we're, you know, interacting with a transmitter sometime, we feel charmed by them. Wow, this person really is paying attention to me and thinks I'm special. But then we start to notice that the conversation is all about them. Okay. So um, um, this is a quick thing. We're going to, in our next video, we'll talk about the pattern of expression. So these biases express themselves in a particular way, okay? And um, we don't use the term stack like other Enneagram teachers do for a variety of reasons. Uh, the main one is that it implies that there are kind of three separate things happening, right? Um, independent of each other, okay? One's my dominant one, one's my secondary one, one's my third one. Um, and um, for us, it's different. So, again, and, it, and it implies like we kind of switch from yeah. preserving mode to navigating mode or, or even become a navigator or transmitter, which is not at all how we see it. Yeah. In fact, um, we see that when we express the other uh, non-dominant biases or non-dominant non domains, we do it with the flavor of our dominant instinctual bias, right? Um, and so, so Riose and I as navigators, when we do transmit or when we do preserve, we don't do it like transmitters do it or like preservers do it. We do it like navigators do it, right? So it's almost like, you know, again, that dominant bias is a filter that shapes the expression of everything else. Same thing with the strategies, right? So when I, as an eight, am, you know, using the strategy at point two, striving to feel connected, I don't become a two, right? I don't access my inner two. I look like an eight, accessing striving to feel connected right or somebody with this dominant bias so mm -hmm. so there's this this flavoring that occurs now again we use expression because that's the way biologists talk about these things they talk about gene expression right a gene gets activated uh, through interacting with environmental forces and it expresses whatever trait or behavior um, that it is related to. Okay, so we like to talk about these the same way. We talk about patterns of expression rather than um, stacks. 
How do these things express themselves? How do these biases towards these domains express themselves in each one of us? Now, I, I remember we saw these. Um video the other day who was trying to explain these I mean your take on the um, instinctual biases I was talking about I think it was in Spanish I don't remember it was yeah I, I didn't understand it piling you know it's not piling, piling. either yeah, right right <laughs> right yeah no it's it's a pattern of expression right how do these things express themselves upon interaction with our environment okay uh, so there is one that's dominant Right. And, you know, and, and again, over the years, like with everything else, we've played with terminology. Right. We talked about, you know, the dominant bias. We talked about a secondary bias that we called adolescent territory. Uh, we talked about a tertiary bias that, you know, we just is the one we access the least. Right. Uh, but the way we've come to think about this is that um, the dominant bias is um, our zone of enthusiasm. Okay? And it's not a conscious enthusiasm. And some people may not even describe it as being pleasant or pleasurable, but it motivates us. It drives us. It pushes us. Okay. I hear a lot of people, particularly with the, in the preserving domain, say, you know, I don't like doing these things, but I just can't help not doing them. Right. I'm driven to do them. I feel tortured by it. Okay. But I have to do it. I can't think about anything else. And so um, so it's not always, you know, positively enthusiastic, right? But it is the place we're drawn to, okay? We go towards one of these domains without thinking about it. And most of the time, we don't even realize that we're thinking about it, that we're doing it, that we're paying attention to it, okay? Now, enthusiasm also does not imply skill, in each of these areas, right? There's a difference between paying attention to something and being skillful at it, okay? Um, I like to watch surfing, okay? Whenever there's surfing on television, I will stop and watch it, okay? Whenever I see surfers on the ocean, I will stop and watch them. There's something extremely compelling. Yeah, of course not. Of course not. You know, I, you know, I mean, it would be the death of me, right? You know, just, you know, just trying to get vertical on a surfboard is not something I ever would or ever would try. Right. So, um, you know, so again, and as with all of these things, uh, just because somebody's navigating doesn't mean that they're socially skillful. Okay, it just means they think a lot about these things. Same thing with both the other domains. Okay, so somebody can be preserving, but you know their preserving can you know tendencies can be so out of whack that they call them they cause themselves harm. Okay, they might hoard too much, right? They might you know they might uh, you know be focused on saving money so much that they don't take care of their house or their car or whatever it is. Okay, so uh, there's a big difference between skill and attention. In each of these domains. The second domain we call the zone of inner conflict, and that is that inner conflict is greater for some people than it is for others, right? Depends on, you know, where we are on our, you know, life journey uh, with these things, but it's interesting. Go ahead, Rosa. And the circumstances. I think that yeah. life, I mean, the context in which we're inserted, it, it, does um, influence how much we develop certain things and, and or not. And yeah. 
what I've seen is that some people are uh, more drawn or comfortable in the secondary domain or bias, the zone of inner conflict in certain ways. Um, if they've had, if they've been kind of forced to pay attention to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. We can, you know, we can choose a career that requires us to be effective in a domain outside of our dominant one. We can have the influence of parents who, you know, drilled certain ideas into our head, right? Um, you know, so these things can have an impact, again, to the way these things express. Okay? Expression is all about an innate tendency coming into contact with our environment and causing a reaction. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, just to give one quick example of this, and I, I forget the name of the gene, but there's a gene or gene sequence that has to do with violence, right? And they've tracked and they said, here's what it is that is, you know, kind of the, the root of the expression of violence toward other people. And, you know, and, and they track people who have this gene and those who don't. And the people who have this gene, if they have not had violence done to them, then that gene doesn't express itself and they're not violent, right? And people who don't have this gene, most of the time, even if violence has been done to them, they don't become violent in response. They still stay relatively nonviolent. Again, environment impacting with potential, okay, that causes the expression of certain things. Th that whole topic is very controversial, uh, kind of politically incorrect to say that. <laughs> Some people don't want to hear it, so it's yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, okay, yeah, yes, because it's very easy to start, you know, maligning that because you can then start to say certain, um, you know, ethnic classes, categories have, you know, higher propensities towards certain genes and therefore this, therefore that. Yeah, absolutely right. So, um, <laughs> you know, these things are all very complicated. We want to be careful about uh, uh, becoming too, um, you know, uh, social Darwinian in that sense, right? So, um, but getting back to this inner conflict, what happens here is that this second, this second domain, um, we usually express it in ways that we're not aware of. Okay, that so we do it more than we believe we do, or that we realize that we do. Okay, but we're often conflicted about it. Right mm -hmm. uh, now, sometimes, and usually, what we say is, if it's my role, I can do it well. Right. So Rioze and I often talk about how, you know, even though we're navigators and our zone of inner conflict is in the transmitting domain, if we are in a role where our job is to transmit, then we do it very comfortably and very easily. Mm -hmm. But in different environments, it's we have much more inner conflict about it. And we can have, you know, biases towards people who have this domain, right, because they kind of, you know, tweak something unresolved in each of us right so uh we can see people in a sense uh, often demonizing people who spend too much time you know or people who have that uh, as a dominant bias that thing that is our secondary bias okay mm -hmm. so so very often people see themselves as um having this zone of inner conflict as their dominant bias and the reason for that, one of the reasons for that, 
is because when we're feeling conflict, we tend to pay more attention. Okay. So because I'm conflicted about it, I recognize it more and I start to see it. Now, other people kind of push it into the shadows, right? And, you know, demonize it to such an extent or uh, are so conflicted about it that they've pushed it out of their awareness in general, right? Uh, You know, and so they don't see it as much as it's there. Okay, so there's no easy answer to this. Yeah, and 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 maybe that's what you're um, referring to here. But some people not don't see it as their dominant, but they see it as their tertiary or so on a bit different because they are aware of it, but they're more aware of their incompetency or they are of the they're more aware of the things that they're not good at or not addressing. Yes, and they see it as their third. Uh, but it's they're not indifferent to it, right? So and that's again, the key. Yeah, and and again, it brings us back to this idea that there's a difference between skillfulness and attention, right? Yeah. So, for example, we see transmitters who say, "Oh, I have no preserving or self-preservation at all," but it's they talk about it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're always talking about how bad they are at it, okay? Yeah. Um, so you don't hear people having that conversation necessarily about their, the third domain, which we call the zone of indifference. Okay. Now this doesn't mean that we're indifferent to it all the time, right? I like to say that the preserving domain is my zone of indifference, but I still have enough good sense to come in out of the rain and eat when I'm hungry. Right. I mean, it's, you know, and I understand, you know, by this point in my life that there are certain preserving things I need to take care of in order to, you know, function as a, you know, as an active human being. Okay. I need to brush my teeth. I need to get a little exercise. I need to eat right. You know, I need to do certain things. I need to be organized, pay my bills, etc. Okay. Now I may not get excited about doing those things. I may forget about them on occasion, or I might have structures in place so that I'm pretty good at those things. But the difference is once they're done, they're done. Right. Once I've satisfied that need, my mind goes on to something else. I don't go back to it until I have to. I don't think about it any more than I need to, etc. Right. So, go. Were you gonna say something? I was thinking about a conversation with Becky and I had the other day about the preserving domain. We're both navigators, and we were saying how we both feel like when we address the the preserving domain, we feel like we should get an award. You know because. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah it's it's you know again it, it's not you know and and some people call this third domain uh what a you know kind of a blind spot and talk about having shame there and that sort of thing and it can be a blind spot because we don't pay attention to it right i mean again if we don't think it's that important we're not going to pay attention to it so it can be kind of blind to us uh any shame that we feel is you know um the analogy of the chicken and the egg, right? I don't think that we are not good at it or we ignore it because we feel shame in this area. I don't think shame is the starting point. We might feel shame at our lack of skillfulness in the area. Uh, That seems more likely to me, right? And the consequences of not paying attention to it. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, um, So 
there is this pattern and uh, in the next video we'll talk about what that looks like in the three versions by this point in the program we're all aware that in our view there are only three instinctual profiles um, and to my knowledge we are the only people saying this Everybody else says that uh, there are six profiles. You can be self-pressed, social, and sexual, or you can be self-pressed, sexual, and social in your stack. Um, that is simply not our experience. Okay. And, and um, again, you know, it's just not our experience in individuals. It's not our experience in the way that it correlates to our clients' strengths and developmental areas. It's not our experience in the way that uh, teams operate or that organizations operate. We can see the patterns of these three profiles over and over and over again. Now, in fairness, could we be victims of confirmation bias? Sure, right? Uh, could we be rationalizing behaviors that we see in other people as a way of justifying our theory? Sure. Right? And um, we work in the real world with real people who pay us to help them see things. And if this did not track to our clients' experiences, we think we would have heard about it by now. Okay. What we have found is that even though many people have disagreed with us on this, um, when they understand the terminology correctly, when they see themselves clearly, they, um, um, uh, they, they fall it. into the pattern. And when we are introducing clients to this, before we even tell them that um, there are three patterns, they, they almost always see it themselves because they have not been predisposed to believe that there are six Thanks. patterns, right? They just don't know. So they tend to see the same three patterns we see over and over again. Okay. Yeah, in my, in my experience with clients, the only times when they don't feel they fit into this pattern is when their strategy is confusing them. Yes. And, and for example, I had the other day a group where there was a preserving three who thought that he was preserving, transmitting, and navigating. Right. But the transmitting had to do with the three strategy. Right. And once we covered that, um, same thing with the transmitting nine the other day, uh, who, of part of the same team who thought that he was transmitting navigating. Um, but the navigating aspects were more the nine, this nine strategy at place. Yeah. Um, other than that, which is quite straightforward. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I, I, I was uh, talking with a Preserving Three the other day as well, and he was talking about his son's uh, choice of uh, college to go to, right? And he could have gone to, uh, for grad school, he could have gone to the big-name schools, uh, you know, Stanford, Harvard, that sort of thing, but he chose a state school, uh, which is much less prestigious for, you know, a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, and the father, you know, preserving three was like, ah, you could have gone to, you could have gone to Stanford. You could have gone to Hartwright, right. You know, and it could again, look like a status issue. Um, but it was a three thing, 
right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about showing off uh, from a transmitting perspective. It was about the three-ish quality that you're talking about, okay? So um, again, you know, with these patterns, I'll just uh, finally say uh, this is something that I have been talking about for years and years in the Enneagram world. And, um, y- y- you know, I've I would say this-, this is the first thing I heard about you. Right. So and, um, you know, and I, you know, if it weren't true, it would make my life a lot easier. Right. Um, <laughs> So, you know, unfortunately, I, I have to go where the data takes me so far. So anyway, uh, the way these profiles work is for preservers, the zone, the uh, re- reason we call somebody a preserver is because their zone of enthusiasm is in the preserving domain. And what we find with people whose zone of enthusiasm is the preserving domain is that the navigating domain tends to be the zone of inner conflict. Okay. Um I want to be around people. I want to have friends, but not too many of them. Um, I want to do things socially, but I don't want to put in too much energy to um, uh, to interact with people. So they have a tendency to build small clusters of close-knit friends rather than having a lot of diffuse relationships like you'd see with other navigators. Okay. I've seen I've seen how when it serves a purpose like at work or even the strategies kind of goals, um, they can navigate quite effectively. Exactly. They can understand the group dynamics and what's going on and who is who, but it's not like a navigator would do it. It's right. like a preserver would do it. Right. And we're always very careful about creating just so rationalizations to justify this pattern of expression, right? So, you know, so take this with a huge, huge, huge grain of salt. But there is a certain logic here, right? That in, you know, maintaining my network in a way is one way to increase my preserve or to to satisfy and safeguard my preserving interests, right? So, um, but the transmitting, you know, sort of runs counter to that need to hold on, to play it safe, not to take risks because transmitting means letting go of those things, okay? So um, we tend to find preservers to be relatively uninterested in the transmitting domain. Yeah, if I want to preserve my resources, I'm not going to give them away like a transmitter. Right. Exactly, exactly. In the uh, navigating uh, instinctual bias, um, those with a navigating, dominant navigating bias tend to have a secondary interest in the transmitting domain or, you know, it's, it tends to be their secondary um, domain and it's the zone of inner conflict, Okay. Part of me wants to transmit, but I am nervous about exposing myself. Remember that dissonance we talked about, okay? If I transmit too much, I am going to potentially expose things about myself that will get me kicked out of the group. So I have this inner conflict about it, okay? I don't want to take too much of a risk in the transmitting domain and jeopardize my standing within the group. I'd rather play it kind of safe. Okay. And with their tendency to sort of, you know, filter their attention outward, 
you know, look, if I want to navigate, I've got to leave home, right? Just, you know, it, it, at least metaphorically, okay, if I'm going to go out and understand, it implies moving away from the nest. So um, the preserving domain can feel like a burden to navigators, right? It can feel like an unnecessary burden to the thing that's really, really important to me. Yeah. I was just thinking about how comfortable I've been during the pandemic being at home as a navigator because my house, nothing personal with my family, but it kind of expels me, you know? It's like I need to go out. And, um, but now I've been really comfortable. Mm. And I think it is because since this started, I've been even more connected to so many people in different countries, right. Right. in different places because of Zoom and all the technology, right. that to me, I can navigate probably even more by being at home now. Right. And so I don't feel like I'm um, stuck here or that I'm limited in any way in terms of navigating. It's right. the other way around. Right, right. Uh, for people with a dominant transmitting bias, again, it's their enthusiasm, their zone of enthusiasm. The inner conflict is around the preserving domain. Okay. Um, one way to think about this is if I want to establish myself as desirable, I need to have resources. I need to be healthy. I need to be fit. I need to take care of myself. But I have this conflict between wanting to take care of myself and, you know, preserve my energy and wanting to express myself and express my energy. Okay. Again, causing this tension. And okay? if I, if I, you know, stay home and conserve, I feel conflicted, right? I don't get have anybody to transmit to. Um, most transmitters I know have their own kind of safe space that they create. Most transmitters I know would describe themselves as actually introverted and like to be at home and like to be in their space. Okay. Again, this is a this is an element of preserving, okay? Uh, and, so. and many see themselves as preservers. That's yes. very interesting to me. Yes. How, yes. how, how they, they see themselves as preservers and they're talking all the time and asserting them, themselves all the, all the time, but it's not their experience. Yes, yes. The um, zone of indifference is the navigating domain. Um, the navigating domain, again, is about going out and listening, observing, learning. And transmitters can be very good listeners, but it's usually for a shorter time because they are, you know, um, kind of sizing people up for their degree of interestingness, right? Uh, to what degree does this is this person of interest to me? And, you know, so I try to determine that quickly. When I determine they're not of interest to me, I stop paying attention because I'm bored, right? Or I'd yeah. rather think about something more exciting. Hmm. Right? I, I was thinking about, again, my transmitting daughter. Uh, I've been hammering kind of the navigating skills since she was a kid, I mean, younger, um, because I know that that will help her because navigating is important, right? And, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> and they're all and, important. I know, but that's what she's less 
right. prone to pay attention to. And um, lately she has been saying to me, you know, mom, enough of understanding the other side of the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> enough. I get it. Yeah. But yes. enough. <laughs> this is boring to me. Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, again, transmitters. Now, very often in the Enneagram world, we see people that we would classify as transmitters or who we'd even identify themselves as transmitters, you know, particularly using the one-to-one or sexual language, will see themselves as social second. Okay. Um, they tend to be more social in the colloquial context of the term, right? Or the colloquial use of it, right? Wanting to be around people that they can get the attention of, right? Or that they can transmit to. So there's a part of them that gets very energized by social activities. But then once they've done their, you know, uh, you know, I always think of a bee, right? Who goes out and goes from flower to flower and does the pollination things that nature has evolved into it. But then when it's done, it goes back to the hive, right? My work's done here. I'm good for the day. Boom, I'm out of here. So um, that's not navigating. Okay, going around and, you know, connecting to people, networking with people and kind of a, you know, very intentional and uh, uh, transactional way is not the same as listening to people and understanding them and figuring them out and categorizing them and all that sort of stuff in the navigating domain. So we have covered a... Uh, number of components to the awareness to action enneagram. We've talked about the three instinctual biases. We've talked about the nine strategies. We've talked about the core qualities and the accelerators. Okay? And we've talked about each of them independently. Although when we talked about the core qualities and accelerators, we talked about how those things overlap. But what we're going to do now is take all these pieces and put them together along with the awareness to action process and um, provide a map for creating change, right? Once we understand somebody's uh, preferred strategy and instinctual bias, we get a sense of what their subtype is and we have created 27 maps, okay? We call them the awareness and action charts. Okay? In so fact, it's 54, I think, because it's, we have two for each subtype. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One, uh, it's the awareness chart for each subtype and yes. then the action chart. Yes. So one is kind of a, a diagnostic chart. Well, it's no, it's, we don't want people to be overwhelmed by, you know, 27 is hard enough. Right. But, um, you know, we we um, one there's two for each one to identify what the challenges are. And the other one is to um, create an action plan for how to grow and develop. Okay. So um, so when we put it all together, Basically, what we end up doing is to learn to observe and to calibrate the instinctual biases. What we mean by that is start to become intentional about the instinctual biases and not overdo them, but not underdo them when we need to be relying on them. We need to be using them. Okay, So we look at each one of them you know, and develop a strategy for improving where we need to and uh, not overdoing it when we fall into that pattern. Uh, when it comes to working with the strategies, again, we use the awareness to action process. Uh, 
And uh, we, you know, we think of this as deconstructing and reconstructing the strategies. Okay, we rewrite them so we can go from maladaptive applications of the strategies to adaptive applications of the strategies. Okay? Uh, we create practices for ourselves around the accelerators. You know, we put those to work. Um, and again, with all of these, it's not just the one dominant, right? We're not just thinking about one instinctual bias. We're not just talking about one strategy. We're talking about all three instinctual biases. And we're talking about um, the strategy, accelerator, and core quality at our Enneagram point and the two connecting points. Okay. So this is kind of the matrix that we create. It comprises these elements to both identify pitfalls and potential pitfalls, okay, and to create a plan for growth and development. And it doesn't mean that we need to do everything that we will show in these charts. It means that when we are dealing with something, uh, it helps to have this map uh, and identify where the problem's coming from and then know what to do about it. Right. Or, as you were saying before, um, explore each of these things so that maybe there is a problem there or right. an opportunity there. But it doesn't mean that we need to kind of um, check all the boxes uh, right. because everything applies. It doesn't necessarily apply. Yeah. And, you know, and if we have plenty of time and ambition, you know, and if we're working on ourselves, you know, we can use this as a, a roadmap for, you know, total enlightenment, um, but, uh, you know, or at least, uh, you know, robust growth. Uh, but typically when we're working with clients, to your point, Riose, we don't say, okay, we've got to check every one of these boxes. Um, it's a map to show us where to look. Again, it's our problem resolution protocol that says, hey, look here and if you see the issue, then work on it. If you don't, go to where you see the issues. So this is the awareness chart. It includes, as, as you said before, the instinctual biases uh, and what the potential problems could be. And with the zone of enthusiasm, it could be that it's overdone. And with the zone of an inner conflict that we distorted, we distort... Um, our own kind of the awareness we have about how good or bad or skilled or unskilled we are or what it means to be like that to uh, be a preserver a navigator or a transmitter and the zone of um, ignorance uh, or of indifference sorry uh, it's um, might be ignored so these could be sources of issues and again, this will look different for each of the subtypes, right? People, you know, uh, that's why we, you know, talk about the zones here rather than, you know, preserving, navigating, transmitting, et cetera. This is kind of a generic map here, okay? Um, so that's the left column. And then we have the right section here, which has three columns in it. And um, we start off with the Enneagram point then the strategy and the core quality. So again, if we're looking for, uh, to diagnose what the challenges probably are. We look at the preferred strategy, the neglected strategy, and the support strategy. Okay, for the one, we look at one, seven, and five. I'm sorry, one, seven, and four. 
Okay. Um, we know that more than likely the, um, uh, the preferred strategy is going to be overdone. Okay? The neglected strategy will be distorted in some way. Okay? Again, um, you know, although we call it the neglected strategy, we don't always neglect it. Okay. But we get into trouble when we have a particular distortion around that strategy and therefore we ignore it when we should be using it. So the seven who's striving to feel perfect, I'm sorry, the one who's striving to feel perfect looks over at point seven, sees this strategy of striving to feel excited and says, yeah, I'm not going there, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to avoid getting excited. So they don't allow themselves pleasure. They don't allow themselves enthusiasm. They don't allow themselves to be lighthearted, okay, because of this cognitive distortion around this strategy. And then with the support strategy, we get into trouble because we, again, overdo it and use it to simply reinforce often a maladaptive version of our preferred strategy. So the one you know, uses point four, striving to feel unique to, you know, reinforce their striving to feel perfect in a negative way. Okay? I'm the only one who gets it. I'm the only one who works hard, etc. cetera. Okay. Yeah, and the core quality at the three of these points um, has got stunted and uh, might be a source of, probably a deeper issue that we might not see so easily. But if we look, or sometimes it's just um, there, it's more visible and it's part of this map. Yeah. Now, again, when we, when we look at these core qualities, we can relate to all nine of them. Okay, we've talked about that, you know, the one, mm -hmm. even though they're focused on points one, seven and four, um, they tend to, um, um, uh, you know, they, they can feel the stunting at compassion. They can feel the stunting at value, at you know, benevolence, etc. But the most acute issues, the ones that cause them the most trouble, are at points one, seven, and four. Yeah. So um, here we have the action chart, right? So once we've kind of diagnosed what the concerns are you know we kind of found the spot on the chart where the problem is okay we're working with someone and we realize that their biggest problem has to do with them you know distorting the secondary um, instinctual bias the zone of inner conflict okay so that's the thing that's eating them the most or causing them the most trouble that's where we're going to go first okay this is kind of like a I don't know if the menu is quite the right term, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a map in a sense of, you know, if this, then that, if that, then this. It's so, more like the protocol that we've talked about. There you go. That's a, that's a better way to think about it. Okay. Um, and um, so, um, so the solution to these challenges, the work that we do is learn to manage the zone of enthusiasm, okay? Instead of overdoing it, instead of overdoing the preserving, overdoing the navigating, overdoing the transmitting, we learn to manage it more, okay? Be aware of our tendency to overdo it and put some, you know, restraints on ourselves, put some uh, boundaries on ourselves when it's related to that domain, okay? Uh, we work on resolving our inner conflict around 
this secondary domain. Okay, so if I'm a um, you know a preserver and I have this inner conflict around navigating, I start to explore. Okay, well, what is a healthy way to navigate, and how can it actually enhance my ability to feel safe in the preserving domain? One of the reasons why we have this inner conflict in the secondary domain is it causes a feeling of threat to our security or viability in the first domain. Okay? Uh, the navigator, for example, they have the inner conflict around uh, the transmitting domain. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is one of the things that the navigator is trying to do is be conscious and deliberate about how much they reveal of themselves, right? We talked about this need for, uh, you know, to be accepted, okay? Uh, well, if they get too much into transmitting, they might reveal things about themselves. They might say things that expose too much. Okay? So it, it you know, it, it makes them feel insecure in a way in the navigating domain, okay? With preservers, if I'm spending my time out there navigating, it takes me away from, you know, paying attention to the things that are close to me, right? Now, because this secondary domain is kind of close enough, right? I've got this inner conflict about it, but, you know, I'm not ignoring it completely because I also see the value in it. When it comes to the third domain, it seems to be completely sort of, you know, uh, problematic, right? So the preserver says, man, oh man, if I get out there transmitting, that's going to take me way out of my comfort zone. So I'm not going to do that. Okay. Um, so they have a tendency to just think, you know, I'm not even going to bother with that one. It's just not important. It's counterintuitive to anything I want to accomplish. Okay. So they have to work on developing it. Right, if that's their issue. Yeah. On the right-hand side of the chart, we have the strategies. And when we start with the preferred strategy, the solution for um, when we're overdoing the preferred strategy has to do with rewriting our narratives about it and applying the awareness to action process. So if I'm a type three, I have to um, rewrite it and say, I will feel even more outstanding if I do this or if I do that. So these new behaviors that we want to include in our, um, as a, as a, in our kind of like autopilot mode at some point, hopefully, but something that we want to incorporate in our um, habitual patterns is um, we need to see it as something that adds value to um, us in terms of our preferred strategy. So I will feel even more outstanding if I do that. That's the only way to um, resolve the um, overdoing of the preferred strategy. Yeah. When we're talking about the neglected strategy, um, we also need to rewrite the narrative, but it's slightly different. We need to pay attention to the contradiction. That's kind of one, one way to approach it that goes usually straight to the point because we are um, distorting this neglected strategy in some way, and that creates the contradiction. So as a type, uh, I don't want to just talk about type one. Um, if I'm a type six, and I see 
um, type nine, which is um, trying to feel peaceful, uh, which is the neglected strategy, for the um, for the type six, striving to feel peaceful feels like lazy. I will not get done what I need to do in order to feel responsible and secure. Um, so I distorted, therefore I neglected and creates this contradiction uh, that I want to kind of rest and get peace of mind, but then on the other hand, I'm anxious and uh, I want to do what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, when I resolve that contradiction, I'm better able to integrate that strategy uh, in a more um, adaptive way. Would you add anything there? No, it, 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 you're, you're absolutely right. These things are about integrating these strategies or healthier definitions or more adaptive definitions of each one of them. And just a point you, you, you made, uh, I, I want to expand on about um, we can't be intentional all the time. We can't be present and conscious and, you know, choosing our response all the time. We're just not made for that. Uh, it requires too much energy. So the goal here is to know when we need to do that, right, and have the skills to pay attention when we need to do it, but also to create virtuous habits, right? So we are taking new behaviors and putting them on autopilot. Okay, but they're effective, adaptive behaviors mm -hmm. instead of ineffective, maladaptive mm -hmm. behaviors. And it's perfectly fine to, you know, reflexively or automatically do positive things, right? I mean, this is why we teach our kids manners all the time, right? So mm -hmm. they just automatically and reflectively say thank you when somebody gives them something or holds the door for them or whatever, right? They don't have to, you know, we don't want them to have to think, okay, this person just did this thing for me. So what is the right thing to do? Oh yeah, the right thing to do is say, thank you. No, you want it to be a reflex, right? So this is what virtue is, okay? This is what good character is in the Greek uh, sense of, you know, habitual good um, action. Yeah. When we get to the support strategy, um, one what we need to do is use that uh, support strategy intentionally, as it says here. And one thing to look at is the entrenched attitude. So we understand what the dynamics of the preferred strategy and the support strategy looks like. Uh, and it's usually related to the entrenched attitude. It shows like the entrenched attitude. and. Um, Addressing that uh, is a good way to um, rewrite the narrative. So, for example, in my case, as a type one, uh, the entrenched attitude um, for type one in the dynamics with the type four is um, self righteous, self pitying. Yes. So I tend to self righteousness. Take your, yeah, take your choice. So it's, it's that dynamic. Oh, it doesn't alter the result, and um, and I can see how I tend to go there. So if I made a make a mistake, I tend to say think about all the ways in which I've tried so hard, poor thing, and or uh, I try to justify it that way. And by being aware of that. Um, alternatives to that um, 
behavior come up, but I need to stop myself from doing that. Right. So when I feel the temptation or the impulse to do that, to justify myself that way, um, I say, okay, let's not go there. And new things come up, and which are usually more adaptive. Yeah. One well, these entrenched attitudes, you know, it, it's funny because as you were speaking, I was trying to recall them in in my head right now it's you know the end of the day here i've had a very busy day you know we're recording this late uh in the in the afternoon and you, you know i'm just a bit fuzzy you know and so what i started doing is taking the worst of each of the points right and just saying to myself okay what happens when you take the worst of those points and put them together um for eight for example i couldn't remember exactly what it was but okay so you have the five and the eight so you're going to get hostility and anger here and you're going to get indifference and i think what we call it is aloof um you know uh hostility or something aggression right? so, aggression thank you right so but again it's you know we don't have to get the terms so you remember exactly mine and right. i remember yours of course yeah exactly <laughs> well there's a message in there right so uh, <laughs> so uh, um so uh, again it's it's a um you know, the, the the model works if you just remember the first principles. Okay, you take the uh, the entrenched attitude is the worst of our point, and the worst of the support point, and combining them together. Okay. Yeah. Now, in order and, to and yeah, so, so, just one thing there. So, there's no need for a type one to change every way in which uh, you can be um, or striving to feel unique or using that strategy. Because it doesn't matter. It, it's not necessary. But when you act in those ways, when the entrenched attitude kind of shows up, then it's something to pay attention to. Yeah. yeah. And so finally, we have as a way of nurturing the core qualities. And so again, as we've talked about before, you can't nurture the core qualities by forcing them to grow any more than you can force you know the, the little oak tree to grow by yanking on it. Okay. So what we have to do is create space for it to grow. And we do that by practicing the accelerators. In addition to all these other things that we talked about, you know, working with the strategies, working with the instinctual biases, all of those things will have the effect of nurturing the core quality. But the accelerator really accelerates that, that nurturing. And again, we almost always want to work on all three of them. Okay, when we're working with somebody because they are interconnected and interwoven and working on one helps with the others, right? We look at points three, six, and nine. We have uh, generativity, we have purpose, we have evidence. And we find over and over again, when we're working with either a three, a six, or a nine, working with all three of those points has uh, a multiplying effect. We're going to take a look at these charts in a specific uh, profile now, right? So we just went over the whole kind of theory behind the charts and we gave examples of what the charts look like in a generic way. Now we're going to look at the preserving one and um, go through the specific charts. And, you know, as we go, we'll go through the rest. But uh, right now we're going to focus on this one. So. Uh, the awareness chart, again, which is about identifying the challenges. It's our problem resolution protocol. We start with the, the zone of enthusiasm, which is that they're preserving tends to be overdone. 
Okay, we know that preserving of ones can be really, really preserving, right? They can be really fixated on things in the preserving domain and get sort of uh, handcuffed by them. Okay? Uh, they distort the navigating thing, meaning that they kind of see it as important, but also see it as a waste of time. They see it as something that, you know, they know will help them. You know, I got to have friends. I got to have a support network. But people are messy and they irritate me and they're always moving my stuff. So I want to, you know, control who I have access to. Okay. And that transmitting tends to be undervalued. They just don't think that it's important. In fact, they think it's kind of unseemly and inappropriate to be showing off, right? Now, again, it's not that they have a lot of energy around that. It's just they're kind of dismissive toward it. <laughs> You know, I, got, I have no time for that. I've got work to do. I've got things to fix, et cetera. Okay? So they undervalue the need to transmit. Yeah, in terms of the strategy, they um, overdo striving to feel perfect. And it was just, that's type one, I was looking at the slide, how it's showing up. And there's a line missing on the table at the bottom. And it was freaking me out, you know. And... Um, I just share it because it's sort of overdoing it. And I started laughing about myself and I looked at the real slide and it does have that line at the bottom so I could relax. But it just, it distracted me. If you were, if had you been asking a question to me, I would have not heard it, you know, right. because I was just paying too much attention to that line missing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and again, you know, we want to say that nobody is doing all of these things all the time, right? Mm -hmm. They are, you know, what we're looking for here are, uh, like when we talked about the derailers in Module 1, what happens when people are off track? What happens when they're fixated? And this is what it tends to look that like. Okay, now that said, even somebody who's done a lot of work on themselves and is reasonably, you know, healthy or adaptive, like Maria Jose, will still fall into these traps, right? I mean, these things are there all the time, okay? Even if it's not a major problematic issue all the time, it's still there. Yeah. So at point seven, it's the um, neglected strategy of type one, and it's um, starting to feel excited. But in this case, uh, it's um, distorted. And it's distorted and it creates a fear of being irresponsible. I'll lose control. I will not do what I should do um, or act the way I should act. And it also creates, and, and that creates uh, this contradiction that in uh, this case is restraint versus indulgence. So type one wants to, uh, how do you say, exercise restraint? Or, yeah, exercise restraint. Right. And indulge themselves. Um, but it looks like they can't live together. It's one or the other. Yes. And this is what happens, again, when we distort something and we reject it or repress it. You know, it's always there, right? It's always kind of, you know, kind of whispering in our ear, nagging us a little bit, right? Always something that we can never really get away from, which is why we have to integrate that. We have to, you know, uh, work on, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but we have to work on... <laughs> How do we undistort that? <laughs> right. yeah. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll exercise soon. restraint here. Okay. Coming soon. Yeah, coming uh, soon. <laughs> and 
Uh, at point four, unique is misused, this feeling understood, uh, misunderstood, sorry, and it creates these uh, entrenched attitude of self-pitying and self-righteousness. And as I said in the previous uh, video, it's like, poor me, I'm the only one who cares. Um, um, I only made this mistake because I was too tired or things like that. Yeah. And, you know, again, the it, it helps to keep in mind the instinctual bias, right? Which is why, you know, one of the reasons we include it here, because, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to be, the, the one is going to be overdoing, I'm sorry, the preserving one is going to be overdoing the strategy, particularly as it relates to the preserving domain. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're going to be distorting uh, the support strategy, the strategy of point seven, again, particularly as it relates to the, pre the preserving domain. And same thing with feeling misunderstood. Okay, So uh, we will see these things most acutely in the preferred strategy. I'm sorry, in the, um, the instinctual bias, right, or the dominant domain. Uh, but, you know, again, it'll leak out into the other areas as well. We will do this in whatever domain we happen to be operating in. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, so finally, the, the other issue and one of the things that, you know, holds the, these other issues in place related to the strategies is that for the one, objectivity is stunted, joy is stunted, and individuality is stunted. Okay, they're always feeling that pain, that suffering around the stunting of those things. Okay. Instead of feeling objective, just go back for just a second, Rio. Uh, in, instead of you know feeling truly objective, I create rules. Okay, and I have to follow those rules because I don't trust my ability to be objective. Okay, uh, because joy is stunted. I kind of you know demonize joy. I demonize pleasure, or I can fall into that, and uh, I can either neglect it or overdo it and with the individuality you know it's interesting how this plays out with ones particularly the preserving one is that you know well i i'm going to follow the rules and i'll be the only one doing it so that kind of makes me unique but i also have kind of a disdain for people who are expressing themselves a bit too much you know and being you know breaking the rules coloring outside the lines on the on the, the coloring book a little too much right they kind of you know um, gets uh, under my skin a bit. Okay, so that's it. it well, if I was <laughs> if I was a preserving one, it would. I don't care personally. You know. It's all hypothetical here. Right. Okay. So uh, now we have the action chart, and the action chart again is how we remediate these things. How do we once we've identified the issues, what what's the work that we do? Okay. Um, so we again want to manage the preserving domain. Okay. Not overdo it, become intentional, recognize my patterns, uh, set up limits and boundaries for myself, okay, in this domain. We want to address the inner conflict regarding navigating and navigating and manage it more effectively, right? And we want to consider how it helps us in the preserving domain, okay? If I become a more effective, more skillful navigator, how will it make me feel safer related to my preserving domain? Okay. Now, again, this is not manipulation of the individual. This is not feeding the ego or anything like that. It's just addressing our very real fears and 
helping to settle them a little bit so we can be less entrenched in our habitual reactions to our concerns. And with the zone of enthusiasm, it's develop and systematize transmitting as needed. So this is indifference. I'm sorry, zone of indifference. What did I say? Did I say ignorance? Like you enthusiasm. Okay, thank <laughs> no, you. I've made a All different right. mistake. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> so again, to rub it on my face. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's late in the day. Um, so it's, you know, creating, and this is what we need to do in the third domain, this zone of indifference, is we need to make a system out of it. It's not just preservers who need to do this with transmitting. We really need to put process and structure in place here to make sure we're paying attention to it. Because if we're left to do it when we feel like doing it, it's just not going to happen. Okay. Um, so we want to develop and systematize transmitting as needed. And again, consider how will it satisfy the preserving values? Okay. How will I be safer, more secure, more well-resourced, et cetera, if I become more effective at some of the transmitting skills? Yeah. In terms of the um, integrant point, point one, uh, redefining how I think about uh, striving to feel perfect, expanding that, that narrative and including things that were not available to me before. So I will feel even more perfect if I don't get distracted with, by mistakes, for example, or um, because in order to fix one thing, I'm making a, a more important thing worse. So I want to be okay in the video and relaxed and that's more perfect than fixing the um anything any mistakes like enjoyment which should be savoring by the way um it's you're muted um for type for point seven resolving the cognitive distortion about feeling excited uh, so it's not irresponsible, it's not losing control. And in my case, for example, one thing I started doing was all these, when I think about the uh, contradiction, it's restraint versus um, indul indulgence, all these things, all these ways in which I would indulge myself, uh, I used to do it kind of feeling a bit guilty, you know, because it's not like I didn't do it. As you said, we repress it, but it doesn't mean that it goes away. So I would have, I don't know, a chocolate bar in my night table or things like that that were um, not open in the public, you know, even small things. And I started doing those things publicly, like... Um, doing the things that I thought were not uh, appropriate sometimes or that I shouldn't be doing, that I should have been exercising more restraint, I would um, go public about them. Yeah. The result of that was that I was more relaxed and people would say to me, you know what, You're, you look happier now. And it was all about not allowing myself to fall victim of that contradiction and repressing that part, that side of me and integrating them and 
just that helped me um, feel more excitement, but in, in adaptive ways. And, it, you know, again, this is an example of kind of resolving that cognitive distortion around this second strategy where we say, okay, you know what? My belief that it's not good to eat a chocolate bar in public is really not true, right? And in fact, if I could learn to, you know, indulge myself in appropriate ways, okay, that's more human. Right. That's 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 actually more perfect because it's what happy, content, balanced human beings do. Right. They indulge in the occasional chocolate bar. Okay, doesn't mean they're shoving them down their face, you know, like, like every five minutes. Right. But, you know, on occasion, it's OK. Yeah. Same thing with technology. I used to feel a bit ashamed of liking kind of iPads and iPhones and all of those things. And. I don't so much anymore. No, I don't anymore. And in fact, uh, because I enjoy it and I'm more relaxed about it, I, I, I enjoy being kind of at the forefront, I would think, I would like to think of technology, you know? I, so I'm, I'm more relaxed with that and I help other people or I take on... Um, tasks that are um, require more uh, technological skills, and I like it, and I enjoy it. So the final piece here is to uh, manage the feeling unique um, to reduce the entrenched attitude. Right? Is to learn to recognize when we fall into that pattern for the preserving one of uh, self-pitying self-righteousness, you know, just kind of like, well, here I go doing it again. Okay. Let me realize that this is a pattern I fall into. Let me rewrite my story here so I can get back on track. Okay. Um, and uh, again, you, you know, nurturing the core quality, it's particularly acceptance, savoring rather than enjoyment as it says here and, um, and disidentification. Okay, so the one benefits, not just from the practice of point one of acceptance, but also from savoring, savoring that chocolate bar, savoring the use of, you know, that new piece of technology. And, and again, savoring is different from gluttony, right, uh, that we associate with point seven. It's, it's having a little piece of chocolate and making it last and enjoying it, right, rather than eating the whole box. And uh, again, finally, disidentification, letting go of our identity of ourself as the perfect person, for example, or, or even as the deeply flawed person who should be perfect. Okay? Whatever we're holding on to, we learn to let go of. And they're very connected. It, it, to me, it's really hard to see one completely independent from the other. Right. Um, it's hard to savor without accepting <laughs> or yeah. without disidentifying and uh, right or, or to accept without disidentifying and yeah, yeah. so yeah. It's, they're all interconnected yeah and again they have a multiplier effect right i mean yeah. you can practice acceptance you know uh, but you know, or you can practice savoring. But if you practice savoring without acceptance, to your point, you're not going to be successful. It's not going to be easy to savor something if you're beating up on yourself 
you know, for and not accepting yourself um, when you're doing it. Or not accepting how things are. Right. Right. The um, the navigating aid, what, what we're doing here is we are um, picking uh, types to focus on that uh, allow us to cover all the points on the Enneagram by exploring the connecting points. So before we talked about the one, which um, allowed us to talk about points one, seven, and four. And now we're going to talk about the eight, which helps us with uh, points eight, two, and five. And then we're going to talk about the six, uh, which gets us to the inner triangle, the three, six, nine. And we're picking one subtype from each. Okay, so we talked about the preserving one last time. We're going to talk about the navigating eight this time, and then the transmitting six. Okay. So again, the idea here is that by understanding the connecting points and understanding the um, um, the pattern of expression of the instinctual biases, we get a uh, a map for a developmental plan to the types. You want me to show it, please? Why don't you talk about the instinctual biases here, Maria Jose? Um, sure. So, as with all navigators, but in this case with the navigating aid, the instinctual biases um, have a particular, there's a particular profile for navigators. And we have the navigating as this zone of enthusiasm and then the uh, transmitting domain as a zone of inner conflict and the preserving domain as the zone of indifference. So in this case, what we see in navigators, it's that navigating might be overdone. So it might be properly used or effectively used, but we get into trouble when the navigating domain is overdone. We put too much attention, we do too much of it, we might exaggerate or neglect doing other things because we're paying too much attention to it. Yeah, that idea of neglecting something because of attention to this is an important one there, right? Uh, um, it might not be necessarily something dysfunctional, but just I've got two choices. I could do this preserving thing or I could do this navigating thing. I really have to do the preserving thing, but nah, I'm going to do the navigating thing. Yeah. So the zone of inner conflict in this case, transmitting, it's where, um, as we said before, we used to call it the adolescent territory. And it's kind of like, I'm not sure if I'm doing enough of it. I would like to do more, but not so much that I draw too much attention. So uh, for navigators, this is something that it's, um, we distort it because we think that doing the transmitting thing at its fullest, it's like being like those transmitters that we would like to be seen as. Now, in the case of the um, navigating aid, I think that you could think that they might be a bit more transmitting or that they're more comfortable with it because of the, the aid energy and how assertive they are. So we need to be careful and navigating one or for example, four will not look the same as a navigating eight. Um, there is um, a more assertive and aggressive energy that could be um, seen more as a bit more transmitting. Yeah. 
And, and that's an important thing to keep in mind when it comes to all of these subtypes that we, um, um, you know, when you take these two elements, the instinctual bias and the strategy and put them together, you can get something that looks very different from the same instinctual bias, but a different strategy, right? I mean, it's almost like taking two elements and putting them together and you can get something very different than if you take one of those elements and put it with another element. Okay. So it's important to really pay attention to affect, meaning somebody's emotional tone, somebody's level of, um, you know, energy and um, activity and, you know, so many other factors and really tease apart. Okay. What am I seeing here? And to what can I attribute it to? Right. Like Marie Jose said, it might be a transmitting sort of energy I'm seeing or a transmitting sort of affect or it may be an eight-ish sort of affect. And it takes time and attention and parsing to figure out exactly what I'm looking at sometimes. Yeah, the preserving domain in this case is undervalued, like with all um, navigators. But in this case, uh, with the eight, they might have less attention to detail, for example, than other subtypes like the navigating six or the navigating one. So um, you could see more of the kind of lack of um, preserving attention, attention to the preserving domain that you might see in others. It's just uh, harder to think that they might be preserving. So with the strategies, again, what we have at point eight is that the uh, strategy of striving to feel powerful tends to be overdone in the eight. That's what gets them into trouble. That's why we call them eights, because that's the um, strategy at that point, And it's the one that they tend to use disproportionately compared to all the others. Okay? Uh, the strategy at point two tends to be distorted. Okay, we call this the neglected strategy, but again, it doesn't mean they never do it. It means that they have a particular distortion around striving to feel connected that makes them not use that strategy at times when they really should. When the eight looks at point two, they have this fear of being dependent. There's always this talk about eights fearing being vulnerable, fear of feeling weak and that sort of thing. And most eights don't really resonate with that. Of course, nobody wants to feel vulnerable. Nobody wants to feel weak, but it's not something that eights spend much time thinking about. <laughs> some people might enjoy feeling vulnerable and get someone else well, to take care of them. You know, it just yeah, well, seems too foreign to you, I think. <laughs> this is true. This is a good point, right? And this is how our own biases get in the way of how we interpret other people, right? What kind of lunatic would, you know, want to be dependent on others, okay? Just doesn't make sense. And so this just goes to show that it's just not part of the world view, right? It's not the way that eights are wired. But the, the thing that eights are kind of up against here is that if I am connected to people, I'll be dependent on them in terms of getting done what I want, right? I mean, if I want to make something happen, but I have to rely on you in some way, it can be very frustrating to me. Or if 
I, you know, feel connected to people. I feel like I have to take care of them. And that feels like an obligation that I may not want to take on if I'm an eight. So um, this fear of being dependent has some very specific manifestations. Um, and But again, it causes this um, this uh, contradiction. contradiction, thank you, of you see this character who at times is very assertive and at other times, you know, in their moments of vulnerability can seem kind of needy, right? Wanting somebody to, you know, to kind of, you know, take over for a while so they can rest or wanting somebody to be there to support them or demanding loyalty from other people, right? Uh, this expectation of, you know, I've protected you, I've done for you, I expect you to do the same for me, okay? And it can come across as kind of needy behavior in the eight that we see. The um, neglected strategy, sorry, the support strategy is uh, striving to feel detached and they misuse it. Of course, they can use it adaptively, but when it's misused, it is. Uh, it looks like this this distant regrouping they kind of take a distance um to I, I can't help thinking about war with aids just everything feels like a battle you know and it's like okay we're in the middle of the battle what do we do now i need to plan i need to uh decide on what strategy i'm using and in order to do that i need to i can't be in the middle of the battle so right. I need right. some distance. Yeah, I, I need to go up on the hill and observe the battlefield, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a saying that, you know, well, we're not retreating, we're advancing in reverse, right? And so, <laughs> it's, you know, so it's this idea, no, that, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, this is, this is, I'm not running from this. I'm not hiding from this. I'm just going off to think for a little bit and to, to plan and strategize. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get trapped there, you know, well, go ahead, Maria, so you finish this. No, no, no. Yeah. So the entrenched attitude when the eight is sort of stuck in that space between, you know, that negative space or the maladaptive space uh, between points eight and point five, it comes across as aloof aggression, meaning there's this, you know, there can be this kind of hostility and anger, but it's not emotional. It's not passionate. It feels almost indifferent. Right. Almost like, a, you know, a, a kid pulling the wings off a fly or something, you know, just uh, just to see what would happen, you know, kind of thing. Um, so it can be, you know, it can be the thing, honestly, that seems most frustrating about AIDS, I think. Or one of the things that seems most frustrating because you don't see explicit anger in them. Right. I mean, when when somebody's angry, OK, I get that there's a problem here. Right. But when they're in that kind of cold place. Uh, Run away. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it can be disorienting to people. We'll say that, right? All right. So, go ahead. Tell us about the core qualities. Yeah, so the core qualities for the aid, and, and this is almost like counterintuitive because you would think that AIDS, um, one of the things that they have the most is vitality, but um, it is exactly what's... Um, what gets stunted in the process of maturation, and it's what they um, what they're missing, what they're not feeling, and they kind of use uh, the strategy of trying to feel powerful to replace that feeling of vitality that got stunted. 
So that's one of the things that could be happening when you're working with an eight. We need to remember that these charts are like a map uh, that can tell us where to look at when we're seeing something that it's not working or something that it's a bit off. And so we look at the different boxes here. And one of the things that could be happening is that they're feeling this stunting of vitality. Yeah. So we see the same stunting around compassion, okay, that there's this indifference and coldness that we've talked about this. And again, you know, uh, it's it's not stunted all the time, right? AIDS can be compassionate at times. And um, so these core qualities sort of manifest themselves in a lumpy way, right? That, uh, uh, you know, yes, they have moments of compassion and they have moments where they're really out of touch with that compassion or they exercise it in an immature form. Um, so there's, there can be this, again, this sort of uh, coldness to them. And then intuition is stunted. And again, intuition is another thing. Most eights, you know, we say, oh, eights are belly types, right? So they act, you know, from the belly and they do this and they do that. It's not mature intuition, right? It's impulse. It's, it's urges. It's drives. It's not intuition in a mature way when they're coming from the place where this is stunted. So, um, uh, again, as with all of these, they can seem counterintuitive. So what do we do? Um, these is, are the action charts. So in the case of the instinctual biases, when we need to manage navigating, it means not overdoing it, use it deliberately, and not um, pay so much attention that we uh, are not effective or are not paying attention to the other two domains, which might be different and more important at a particular time. Um, in the case of the navigating eight, uh, so when we combine both sides, navigating eights uh, tend to want to manage, kind of navigate the group and um, be the, I mean, and lead the group, control the group. And they might, overdo that. So they need to pay attention to it. With the zone of inner conflict, they have to address the conflict regarding transmitting and manage it more effectively, right? Recognize what their obstacles are to uh, transmitting in a healthy way. Uh, understand what sort of, you know, narratives they have about transmitting that uh, get in the way of them being effective transmitters. And it also helps to, you know, ask themselves, okay, well, how will this help me satisfy the things that are really important to me? Uh, how can I, how can I transmit in a way that will make me more effective at navigating? Right? I'll, I'll get more exposure to new and interesting people if I effectively promote what my skills are. Um, Always in this third domain, we want to develop and systematize this domain as needed, right? We really, again, it helps to really uh, leverage 
technology, so to speak. And I don't mean, you know, mechanical technology necessarily, but just the ability to plan, the ability to create processes and structures when it comes to the third domain for all of us, for navigators in the preserving domain that they need to do this. And again, consider how will it help me satisfy my navigating needs. Okay, I can navigate more effectively. I can go out into the world and not have to worry about my home falling apart or my you know, finances being a disaster or whatever else it is if I pay attention to this domain. Yeah, and, and I think we were discussing this the other day, but it's hard to do anything in a consistent way without um, this preserving domain and uh, even not only navigating, but in order to transmit more effectively, we also need some routine, some uh, process that um, comes from the preserving domain. So if we want to navigate better and we need transmitting and for transmitting, we need preserving as well. So it's, it's all connected, but for navigators, it looks in a particular way. So when it comes to working with the strategies, we want to work on rewriting our narratives uh, related to the definition we have, the implicit definition, the habitual definition of our preferred strategy. Uh, in the case of the eight here, we have to redefine what it means to strive to feel powerful in a way that expands our narratives and gives us a wider range of behavioral alternatives or options. Okay, so, and it, it follows a very simple formula. I will feel more powerful if I blank, right? Uh, whenever we're rewriting these strategies, this is the form it should take, right? It should always start off with, I will feel more blank if I blank. Okay, now you can put in as much detail as you need there, but that's the format. Why don't you give an example for the eight, Mario? Yeah, so, you know, one we always talk about is, um, uh, you know, I, I'll be more powerful if I learn to be nice to people, but we'll take that to more collaborative, okay? So, uh, uh, say I'm an eight who's not very good at collaboration because I want to, you know, always be in charge. I, you know, always want to do things my way. Um, and I feel, or you know, in my mind, that's how I implicitly define what it means to feel powerful, right? I do it my way and, you know, I get what I want. Well, that becomes problematic because people start to resist, people start to argue, people start to, you know, kind of gang up and, you know, uh, uh, overthrow the tyrannical leader, right? So the eight starts to realize, well, you know, if I can learn to collaborate, you know, I'll be more powerful if I can learn to collaborate a bit more effectively with my coworkers. Yeah, I was thinking about listening because um, I was... Huh? I was thinking about listening <laughs> uh, uh, because I was um, observing my type A daughter the other day um, talking with a friend and whenever the friend was saying something interesting, my daughter would interrupt and say something even more interesting. You know, she had to kind of have control and kind of win, you know, yeah. and and she feels, I guess, more powerful that way. Mm -hmm. But you could say, I will feel even more powerful if I listen and understand 
what the other person is saying so that I have, I can, I don't know, position myself better or, yeah. so it's intuitively or automatically, we do certain things, we have certain behaviors that in our minds, in our logic will make me feel more powerful. But there are things that in the long term, and that's key, will make me feel even more powerful if I think yeah. about it. And there's certainly this sort of, you know, transactional, you know, uh, I'll be more powerful if I listen because I'll have more information and knowledge is power and all this other sort of thing. But there's also the element of uh, people will feel better, you know, if I listen to them, right? It'll make people feel happy. And uh, so, I'm, you know, by doing this, I'm making the world a better place, right? I'm making this person happy. I'm making this person feel better. And there's an element of power in that, right? I mean, a very nice form of power in, you know, making other people's lives richer by lifting them up. Yeah, and, and that's a process that, I was, as we've said before, can be iterative. So we see one aspect first, and then we go through the one-instruction process and rewrite the narrative once again, and we can do it forever. Yeah. So when it comes to point two, we start to realize again that we have this cognitive distortion around the strategy. And um, so even though our main focus is going to be on rewriting that strategy of point eight around power, it also helps us to think about, well, what does it, you know, what is my distortion around connection? And uh, is, are my assumptions really true? All right. So if I assume that connecting with people in some way makes me vulnerable or in some way burdens me, we can challenge those assumptions. Okay. Well, is that the case? Maybe connecting to people actually uh, makes me stronger because I have good relationships and there are people there to support me when I need it. Okay. Uh, those sort of things. So more uh, inspiring. I'm sorry. I can be more inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. So by learning to figure out how to connect to people, I can, move them in the direction I want them to go, or again, just, you know, uh, kind of make my own world a better place and other people's world as well. Yeah. So we also need to manage uh, feeling detached, right? In order to reduce this entrenched attitude, learn to recognize the way we overuse this strategy in a maladaptive way, understand what triggers us to do that, provide ourselves a, you know, kind of a counter trigger or a solution or an alternative path to take when we recognize ourselves going down there. Oh, I'm doing that aloof aggression thing. Let me take a deep breath. Let me realize I'm being kind of a jerk and let me, you know, start to, you know, tap into my heart, be more kind of compassionate, excuse me, compassionate and connect to people um, a little bit better. So when we want to practice the accelerators, um, the accelerator for type eight, uh, it's at point eight is self-discipline. And we need to remind, I mean, remember that it's self-discipline, that it will not work if you try to discipline an eight, but uh, the, it needs to be something that it's coming from themselves, something that they see the value at getting more disciplined at, and that's something that it will benefit and it will, channel that energy and they will feel vitality, uh, the maturation of it, uh, or if they do it that way. Yeah. 
This is important, not just in bringing out that vitality, uh, but also in transforming the eights ideas about what it means to be powerful, right? So any, um, any practice, any endeavor starts with some sort of fundamental basic training. Right, needing to learn fundamental skills. Uh, if it's a sport, you have to get into shape. Right, you have to, you know, in, in, in football, there's the you know the preseason camp, right, where they start to exercise and start to do drills, and you know, and and in order to be able to be effective during the games during the season, you have to do this groundwork. And so, for eights, very often understanding that the, the groundwork the disciplined, no immediate reward activities that are so important to thriving in any endeavor um, are the things that need to be practiced, right? Um, eights don't like to practice. They just want to get in the game and play, right? So uh, practicing the self-discipline is really important here. Right? Yeah, when it comes to point two, Aids uh, can benefit from practicing cognitive empathy in order to um, nurture uh, compassion. So it's trying to understand what other people need or are feeling and ask themselves and then ask the other person about it so that they can feel more connected. Sometimes uh, an aid, for example, in order to connect, or the connection might feel like they need to resolve someone else's problems or do it from them instead of asking, what is it that you need? Uh, so that can create um, a deeper connection and can take them to uh, compassion. Yeah. And finally, there's practicing intentional practice. Um, it's kind of a feels like a bit of a redundancy, but again, it's to start to exercise these things. This, um, you know, the cognitive empathy, the self-discipline, to be aware of what we're doing, to be grounded, to be present, to be paying attention to the activities, not just going through the motions. Okay, uh, particularly around these issues that have to do with empathy, right? You know, people can always feel when we're just going through the emotion. I'm sorry, going through the motions of practicing empathy, it doesn't feel genuine. So really being there, really trying to understand what the other person is feeling um, is uh, very critical to this. Okay, so again, we see that all three of these accelerators are important practices for the eight. And we see that over and over again. We don't wanna just practice our own, uh, the, the, the accelerator at our own uh, any ground point, but uh, the connecting points as well. So now we're moving into the transmitting domain, and we're going to talk about the transmitting six. So this puts us also into the the inner triangle of the enneagram. And as we've said multiple times, that um, the three, six, and nine are sort of inverted versions of each other, right? Dealing with the same critical issues but just in a different priority, and it creates three very different characters, okay? And the transmitting six is, you know, it's, um, we often say it's what can, is confused as the, um, as the counterphobic six, 
But more and more, I really just don't like those terms, phobic versus counterphobic, right? It's, it's, an, a more, it's a more seemingly aggressive version of the six, let's say that, okay? Because the transmitting bias makes for a more assertive character, okay? Um, but still six, striving to feel secure, just doing it in a different way with a different instinctual bias. Uh, it's it's more confusing to observe. I mean, to make sense of why they're doing what they're do that they're doing. Um, the transmitting domain it's their zone of enthusiasm, so um, they might overdo it, and that's when they get in trouble. It's so interesting because it's they have that, and their connecting point to three as their um, support strategy makes them uh, look like they're trying to draw more attention than they're, they think they're doing, that they yeah. think they're trying. Uh, and in that way, it's kind of confusing. They're, in my experience, not so easy to read to make sense of them. Right. So they might be overdoing the transmitting and then uh, the preserving is distorted they um, think that they are not as good as they might be, or they might sometimes um, think that they need to do more of that. Or what I've seen as well is that they might do it almost obsessively um, at times, but then forget about it. So it's um, not, they're not kind of, at peace with it, to say it in a way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, it, you know, because we're talking about a six and the six can, uh, striving to feel secure, can look like preserving. Mm. In some ways, it might make them look more preserving than they really are or that they spend, um, you know, more time with this and are more conscious of it than they really are. Okay. So uh, again, you have have to have a number of factors, and it really helps to understand the, the the dynamics, right? When we're looking at the transmitting six versus the preserving six, it helps to understand that yeah, you know, there's a lot about the six that looks preserving, okay? And we have to calibrate for that in our analysis of people and our engagements with people, okay? Um, and uh, but what happens is the navigating is underdone, right? So. Um, the navigating domain. Now, again, they might appear social, but their ability to read social cues, to read the subtle dynamics, tends to be, um, you know, not highly attuned. Right? Uh, they, um, you know, they they're good at finding danger. They're good at figuring out power relationships, that sort of thing. But um, but when it comes to the details and nuances of the na of the navigating realm. Um, they really don't place importance on it. In terms of the strategies, um, the strategy at point six, striving to feel secure, might also be overdone or they get in trouble when they overdo it. And they might pay just too much attention. They might try to see and approach life with too much of that, uh, too much for me at least, um, not for them probably, uh, of that um, need to feel secure. Yeah. 
Well, may not feel like too much, but it is too much sometimes, right? I mean, it's overdone. And this is the danger of the preferred strategy is that we often overdo it in ways that are detrimental to us, even though it feels completely sensible to do it the way we're doing it. Yeah. At point nine, the neglected strategy for type six is striving to feel peaceful and they distort it when they think about feeling peaceful it feels like being passive. And if I'm passive, it looks the opposite of what I need to do in order to feel secure. So if I'm passive, I will not be alert. I will not do what I'm expected to do. I will not be responsible. So that creates this contradiction of responsibility versus laziness. If I'm too relaxed, uh, if I'm too peaceful, I'll feel lazy, but I want to feel a bit lazy at times. I want to rest. So I have this contradiction as a six of wanting to do what I'm what I should be doing. And on the other hand, I really don't want to do it now. I'll do it later. And it's almost yeah. kind of like a rebellious laziness, right? Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna prove a point by you know not paying attention to that danger or not always being the responsible one, right? You know, screw it. Let somebody else take care of it. I'm going to, I'm going to relax. And then they start to question their decision about relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, at point three, the support strategy, what I was saying before uh, regarding these, how they look with the transmitting domain as well. But uh, for transmitting sixes, this looks even this is more evident, I think, the neglected strategy at point six, how it's misused and some, sometimes in order to prove their worth, in order to show the people around them that they're doing their part, what it's expected of them, what's their responsibility within the group, they do these needy boasting. So they talk about their accomplishment, but not in an attempt to uh, draw attention and feel outstanding like a three, but in order to get people to realize that they're doing their part. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, exactly right. It, it, it enhances my security, right? I mean, if people place value on me, then they'll protect me. And if I'm worried about whether or not they're placing value on me, I have to give them reason to put value on me to see my worth. So I don't, you know, uh, get kicked out of the group. Yeah. In my experience, this is one of the things that it's more confusing to people around transmitting sixes. They yeah. don't know how to read these um, uh, attitude, this behavior in transmitting sixes. Yeah. Because in the transmitting six, I think even more so, or definitely more so than the navigating or preserving six, it does seem like more naked you know, chest thumping, right? Uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm awesome. Did you see what I did? You know, bringing attention to their accomplishments. Um, and uh, again, it's not, um, it, it comes from kind of a place of vulnerability, right? Uh, and so it helps to understand that so we can be more compassionate for them when they fall into that pattern. Yeah. The core qualities uh, at point six, it's confidence and the, its development gets stunted in the um, process of 
growing up for all of us, but for point six, for sixes, that even more kind of the loss of it or the stunting of it is, feels more acute. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, benevolence is stunted as well, right? Uh, do I have good intentions? Am I too focused on my own needs and security? And uh, or am I truly um, having goodwill towards others? And then value becomes stunted as well. Again, this you know reinforces what we just talked about related to the strategy. If I truly felt valuable, if I truly felt like I was inherently worthy, I wouldn't feel this need to prove my worth. Mm. So one of the things that uh, sixes benefit from working on is manage transmitting. So not overdo it. Um, not neglect the other things just because I'm doing too much of that. Um, and do it in a way that it's adaptive, that it's what it's required in any particular time and not uh, do too much of that. Yeah. Yeah. The zone of inner conflict, they want to look at the, um, uh, their, their distortion around preserving, right? That, um, you know, because they have this thing where if I become too cautious, then I'm not gonna be able to stand out, right? If I withhold, if I hold on to my energy, I won't get recognized, I won't be noticed. So they need to get some balance around that. They need to start developing a bit more security around their ability to preserve themselves so they don't become sort of combative in this domain, which can happen, right? Uh, in the transmitting six, when they feel like somebody is threatening their resources in some way, they get very aggressive. They can look at kind of eight-ish uh, at times. Yeah, and, and I was thinking about that when we were talking about the managed transmitting, because when they might overdo that, get too combative, um, they might not be effective so people might stop listening to them they think that they just right. want to fight and uh they will the other the person in front of them will not listen to the message that they want to convey right so the zone of indifference is related to the i'm sorry to the navigating domain and again it helps in this third domain to create good processes and structures um you know even if it is the navigating domain. We need to make sure that we're getting out there and navigating in a deliberate and consistent and managed way. Right? Uh, so the transmitting six needs to say, okay, I need to get out and find three people today to just listen to, ask them some questions, and then let them respond rather than doing all the talking. Okay, uh, And learn to understand how can this make me feel safer? How can this make me feel more effective at transmitting? I will understand people's needs better. And so I'll be able to understand how to transmit to them and that will make me more secure, etc. cetera. Hmm. Made me think of an example with my daughter, my 15 year old, she was uh, with other girls at her school um, complaining about a particular topic and she was as a transmitter and a 15 year old, uh, just kind of manifesting her uh, objection to the topic. And uh, we talked to her and showed her how she could build alliances 
with some of the people at the school uh, so that to be kind of more political, you know, to, to make sure that she had some uh, connections that would support her actions. And it, that would have never occurred to her where for some people that's more natural, for her it isn't. And when she did it, she realized that she could transmit better and in a safer way by building these alliances with people from the school which would support her uh, if needed. Yeah. So um, it's not something that it's natural for sexes, for, for uh, transmitters, but um, it makes sense to them. Yeah, but it has to be in order to feel more, uh, to transmit more or to benefit the transmitting and feel more secure. Yeah. Yeah, There's. it's almost like if, if I stop talking, then people won't hear what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. So if I let them talk, they won't get my message. So I've got to keep, you know, spitting this message out over and over again, uh, which, which can, you know, can be counterproductive because what happens? People stop listening. Right? Say, yeah. like, oh man, you know, she's she's just not stopping, is she? You know, so I'm gonna move on. Um, so when it comes to the strategies, it's about re you know rewriting what it means to strive to feel secure, so we can expand the narrative. Um, I will feel more secure if I blank. Okay, if I listen to people, I will feel more secure because I'll know where they're coming from. Right. Instead of trying to control and manage and everything and, you know, mitigate all potential risks, I'll learn what the risks really are by, you know, stopping to listen, for example. Mm -hmm. okay. um, at point nine, they want to resolve the cognitive distortion about what it means to be peaceful. They have to understand that I can be peaceful and attentive at the same time. Right. That being peaceful doesn't mean going to sleep or going into a coma. Right. Uh, or, you know, or, you know, kind of going into, you know, putting on blinders and, you know, headphones so I can't hear anything. No, I can do both. You know, you can learn to relax and still, you know, keep an eye out to scan every once in a while, but without overdoing it. Right? Yeah. And I can fulfill my responsibilities even better if I rest. Yes. If I get some rest and I yes. have more energy to do what I have to do. Exactly right. So if I practice some self care, I can be more alert, you know, otherwise if I'm tired and exhausted, I'm going to start seeing things that aren't there or not seeing things that are there, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so at point three, again, they want to manage this, um, uh, the way that they emphasize their accomplishments, right. To reduce the entrenched attitude, instead of doing this needy boasting, they say, okay, well, let me, you know, let me think about what I could do better. Or let me think about what is the real impact of what I'm doing. Let me get some feedback from people on how I'm doing and what I could do better instead of just feeling like I need to keep bringing to it, people's attention what it is that I'm doing. Right? So it's recognizing that, yeah, I mean, it is important to demonstrate our value. It is important to be seen and recognized uh, by other people. We just want to do it in uh, the right way and to the right extent. When it comes to uh, nurturing the core quality so through uh, practicing the accelerators, at point six, it's practice evidence. We've talked about it, but this um, includes 
writing down my accomplishments, all the things that I have done and I've succeeded at, succeeded at, all the things that I've faced and I've been able to deal with in the past. So it is making sure that I have, um, I am aware of the things that I've been able to solve and to address successfully because sixes tend to forget that. Yeah. I find too that when it comes to this, a, a good way to also practice gathering evidence is to keep checklists, right? Of the things that the sixes tend to worry about, right? So, you know, say at home, right? Um, you know, go to bed at night. Okay, did I lock the door? Right. Did I set the alarm? Did I turn off the stove, et cetera, et cetera? Well, create a checklist, you know, and as you go through it, check each one. You know, there's no harm in, you know, just creating a checklist to make sure because that way you don't lay awake worrying about it at night, you know, and uh, drive yourself crazy. So, of course, that's a silly example, but it applies to the world of work all the time. Right. Here's a list of things I need to do every day or, you know, once a week or whatever the cadence is and, you know, create a checklist to put our mind at ease um, can be very helpful for sixes. Yeah. In terms of um, generativity, sixes can also feel, it's funny how it, they're all interrelated, but uh, more of their benevolence, but also their confidence by through practicing generativity and mentoring others and um, it's a way to also gather the evidence they need to feel more confident uh, while at the same time feel benevolence even more yeah yeah and finally practicing purpose right so um again sitting down and writing out a purpose statement creates a feeling of security, a feeling of groundedness for the six that's so important. It's like they can take a deep breath because they have something to measure against, okay? Is what I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Okay? Six, six is always concerned, well, if I spend my time on this, maybe I'm forgetting about that, or maybe I should be doing this, or maybe I should be you know, uh, addressing that. Well, if we can tie things to a sense of purpose and, a, and an explicitly defined sense of purpose, it provides, it allows the six to relax a bit. Yeah, and, and a sense of purpose that comes from within and not um, managed by other people's expectations, which are sometimes easy to, I mean, hard to read, or they change and that um, confuses sixes. And so having something that it's more of an internal uh, guide can help them feel um, more of their value and nurture confidence as well. 